0: If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can open up to Romans chapter 13 with me. Um, If you're a guest this morning, I want to remind you, we're trying to get better at reminding folks of this, but on the inside of that worship guide that you were given on the way in, there's a guest card in there. We would love to connect with you, capture some of your information. We promise not to spam you or bother you. And on your way out the door today, one of our uh, first impressions people will be out there. You'll see them with a little blue volunteer name tag. They would love to to get that from you, and then also, if you give that to them, you get $5 to Mr. Bean Coffee Shop here in Powell, and so it's the best coffee in Powell, and uh, we want to... Make sure to hook you up to go do that. Um, Wanted to let you all know, too, as you're turning to Romans chapter 13, uh, this past week, your Finding Hope Center was able to send some stuff down to Florida, which is pretty amazing. So most of us probably know, I'm sure all of us know, with Hurricane Ian last week and all the destruction that occurred down there. So we partner first and foremost with an organization called Send Relief. So we're a Send Relief Center next door at our Finding Hope Center. And so they've mobilized thousands of volunteers from around the nation to help with disaster recovery, meals, mud out, so many other things. Uh, but we had a connection through someone in our church that was heading down yesterday to spend two weeks down there. And so you're finding Hope Center, just so you know, sent 50 sets of sheets down there, 60 boxes of women's hygiene products, 50 self-care bags that contain soap, hand sanitizer, hand wipes, a variety of things, 60 toothbrushes, and 2,000 plastic bags that will be used Uh, for lunches and preparation of those to be able to give out to people in the community. Um, So it's pretty awesome, you know, so you not only have an organization representing you, but our Finding Hope Center was able to do that as well, and so that's pretty special. And then what also is cool, I I love to celebrate, if you haven't all figured this out yet, celebrate God's activity in our church so that we realize when we're sitting in here that there's much more occurring beyond this room, that we have a piece of the pie in that so next door right now as we're sitting in this room our glow group so that's our fourth through seventh grade students They're actually serving over at the Finding Hope Center right now. So we have appointments today starting at 1130. I think three families that are coming through to pick out furniture. And so GLOW is getting that whole facility prepped and ready and cleaned for them today. So just so you're aware, if in the middle of preaching today, if you hear a vacuum cleaner that's running, um, if you hear some giggling, if we hear something loud fall, we need to pause and go check on them. But we have a bunch of fourth through seventh graders with a couple of our adult volunteers That are preparing that facility to receive families around lunchtime today so that we get to serve them well. And so I think that's pretty exciting. I think that's pretty cool. If you don't, something's wrong with you. All right, Romans chapter 13. If you have a copy of the scriptures, if you wanna go there, Romans 13. I'm gonna be, um, what's the word? Fully transparent with you this morning. Um, Preparing for this message has been one of the most challenging endeavors of my ministry. Um, I feel like in a, a small way, I've experienced a level of spiritual warfare this week that I haven't in a quite a long season. Um, life's still good, but things are challenging. Um, I try as a pastor to not shy from difficult subjects in the scriptures, okay? And so let me say that up front. Let me also be clear, I, I try as a pastor to the best of my ability to be humble in my presentation, um, to allow the Lord to speak from the scriptures through me as the the shepherd of this congregation. And so uh, the word for me this morning is not nervous. I don't get nervous when I preach much anymore. But there's a nerve associated with the reality that I am standing before the God of the universe presenting his scriptures today. And um, this can be a divisive, challenging subject. And so let me ask you, um, as the pastor of this church, to approach this today in a posture of utmost humility, a posture of utmost grace, and let's see what the Scripture says together. Can we do that? Let's stand together in the honor of reading God's Word. We're just going to read one verse, and we're going to look at several, but the Word of God says this in Romans 13 through the Apostle Paul. He says, let everyone submit to the governing authorities, since there's no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are instituted by God. Let's pray together. God, we love you. And Jesus, we thank you for your word. God, we we don't want to shy away from the tough things of life, the tough things of the Christian walk. And so, God, we ask, as your word says in 1 Corinthians 2, that the the power of God is found in the Spirit of God, and so we ask that the Spirit of God would be among us today. God, that the Spirit would move in our hearts. The God, that we would be willing as followers of Jesus to allow the Spirit to break down any barriers to our minds today, to our hearts. God, that we would allow the Scriptures to set the pace, that we'd allow the Scriptures to teach us this morning. God, everything we say today, we don't want it to be anybody's opinion. God, we don't want it to be grounded in what we think or what we think should happen or how we think people should act. Lord, we come to you with a very humble heart, simply asking the question, what do the scriptures say? God, because it's from the scriptures where we find our authority. In this church, we hold the word of God in high esteem. And God, it's from the scriptures that we want to be guided and led and molded and transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. So God, would you give us all, anyone within the sound of my voice, a heart of humility today? And may the spirit of God be in our midst. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As you probably have realized, and we've shared this over the past couple of weeks, we're, again, going to take a break from Romans for about four weeks. Uh, We told you earlier in this year that Romans would take us approximately two to three years to journey through, and so we've made it through chapter four. Going to take a little break today, doing a standalone message, and we'll explain that here in just a moment. But next week, we actually get to start what is one of my favorite series we do every October called Ghost Stories. Um, It's a series We, we, we really try to the best of our ability without sacrificing what the scripture says to capitalize on times and seasons in our culture where our minds are already thinking about certain things because of what we're surrounded by. And so every year we do a series called Ghost Stories where we look at different um, aspects of the Holy Spirit from the Scriptures. And so we've looked at the Spirit in the Old Testament. We've looked at the gifts of the Holy Spirit last year. You can go back and review those. But this year what we're going to do is we're going to go through the book of Acts and we're going to look at conversion stories where the Spirit of God showed up into somebody's life and changed them from the inside out and changed their eternal destination. And so that's all going to start next week. But today, our, our message, and we're going to tag team preach here in just a few moments, so I hope that's okay with you. Our message today is over a subject that in recent years has proven to be very divisive and polarizing in many ways. I, just a few weeks ago, when I began mentioning this to some people um, behind closed doors, having some conversations, we mentioned it on a, a Sunday morning, literally every response, every single one except for maybe two people, when I mentioned this topic, everybody goes, ooh, can we do that? Are are we allowed to have that conversation in the context of the local church? Is that really allowed? And I get it. Like, that was my response too. And Pastor Joe and myself started talking about these things. And I just began to research, and I'm like, wait a second. Are we allowed to talk about this in the local church? Because in most cases, when you mention politics in the church, groups of people quickly divide very rapidly into very specific camps. We mentioned politics in the context of the scriptures, the local church, Jesus, God. We mentioned politics. People become angry, shut down. Sometimes, and don't we dare do this in our church, we can just get flat mean when it comes to politics. With the topic of politics about today, I thought about joking with you and telling you that we were going to actually argue about which was better, Pepsi or Coke, maybe to lighten the mood a little bit. By the way, Coke is better. Just in case we go on the same page. I've I've switched throughout my life, but I I enjoy Coke a lot more these days. But nevertheless, as Pastor Joe and I have prayed and talked, we've sought counsel from other pastors, from leaders in our church. The reality is elections are on the horizon for us. We, many, not everyone, we're American citizens. This is home for us. This is a reality That we are engaging in. And Pastor Joe and I believe, based on Ephesians 4 verse 12, that we have a duty and responsibility to equip you as followers of Jesus to make well-informed, convictional, Bible-based decisions, even in the realm of, of politics. And so we want to talk about this idea. What is the role of Christians in politics? I said just a moment ago in my prayer, we don't run from difficult topics in this church We run to them. It's often why we were sharing with someone last week why we, most of the time, probably 85% of the time, we just journey through books of the Bible together. That way when we come across a difficult passage, we don't just get to play hopscotch and go, whoop, just going to miss that one. We don't get to do that. We get to explore the tough things. But we always ask this question, and I hope you know this. What does the Word of God say? If Jesus is Lord of my life, he's Lord of my marriage, Romans chapter 10, he's Lord of my family, he's Lord over my job, he's Lord over my decision making, it means that Jesus, and hear my heart here, he has to be Lord over every corner of my life. He has to be. We don't get to section Jesus off like a waffle and say, Lord, you can have this square, but this one over here is just reserved for my opinions about these certain topics, So let's get right to it, uh, because I need to leave plenty of time for Pastor Joe. He's more long-winded than I am, all right? For context's sake, let's lay a little bit of groundwork here. We have to start with the understanding, this is important if you're a note-taker, that God is a God of order, not a God of chaos. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33. God is a God of order, not of, of chaos. Let me give you some examples. We see this from the beginning of creation in Genesis chapter 1, In the creation of the heavens and the earth, God creates everything in six literal days in a very orderly fashion. Fast forward to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. The Bible says that God creates man from the dust of the ground. Twelve verses later, Genesis 2, verse 19, God creates woman from the rib of Adam. What does He do? He establishes order in the context of the marriage relationship. Adam was to be the leader of his marriage with his wife being his complement, or your Bible might say his helper. We see later in the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 5, God's design for order within the context of the family. God designed the family to function this way, that the husband is the leader of his home. The wife then comes underneath his leadership. Fast forward to Ephesians chapter 6, and we see that children are to be obedient to their parents. God establishes order within the family. He's a God of order. God established order in the local church. We could read in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, the various giftings that we all possess as Living Hope Columbus. And what is that for? It's for the building up of the body of Christ. We function together in an orderly fashion to further the mission of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we read about the various parts of the body of Christ, the local church. Yet what do we do? We organize together in a, a, a position of orderly fashion to do what? Further the gospel of Jesus. We read in Acts 9, 1 Timothy 3, and Titus chapter 1, that there's two offices given to lead and serve the local church, the office of pastor and the office of deacon. Do you get my point here? God is a God of order. Now, curl your toes up, let your shoulders sacks real tense, all right? Don't, don't clench your teeth. How does this order manifest into society specifically in the realm of government and politics? We just read a moment ago in Romans 13, verse 1, that God institutes governments through his common grace to do what? To provide order to society. You could read in the scriptures early in Israel's history in the Old Testament that in the book of Exodus, they were governed by a theocracy, meaning that they found their order in government based out of God's law. We could read in first kings uh, I'm sorry, first and second kings, first and second chronicles, later in Israel's history, that later they moved from a theocracy to a monarchy. They were ruled by a king. Why? Because God is a god of order. We live in 2022, United States of America, governed by a democracy or a constitutional republic, meaning that we are a, a, under a government that is of the people, for the people, by the people. Listen to me. This is not my opinion. Listen to what the Word of God says that our government has been established by God, Romans 13, verse 1. It's for our good when we honor its authority, Romans 13, 3. And it's for the restraining of evil within a nation, Romans 13, 4. With that in context, what's our role as Christians? If we know that God has established this government for our good to restrain evil, what is our role as Jesus followers? Point number 1, we're going to walk through these quickly. First off, we need to submit to governing authorities. 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 13 and 14 says this: Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperors, the supreme authority, or to the governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. Peter's echoing Paul from Romans 13, simply put, as followers of Jesus, people who live lives of good conduct, you ready? We are to willingly submit to governing authorities. Now I understand, this is true for me too. This is hard to do because here's the reality. We don't like to be told what to do, yeah? I know you all. I've hung out with you all. Known most of you for the past three to five years. I know this is hard for all of us. But we're called to submit to our government. We willingly submit to the government unless they ask us to do something against the word of God. Then that's when we draw a line in the sands. We echo the words of Peter in Acts 5.29 where Peter said these words. We must obey God rather than people. We're called to submit. Until the government asks us to do something that as followers of Jesus we just can't submit to. Here's the second thing we do for our government. We pray. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving. Those are all kinds of prayers that we can offer to God. Be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority. Listen to this. So that we may lead tranquil and a quiet life and all godliness and all dignity. Our role as followers of Jesus is to submit to the government. But you ready for this? We also need to pray for our government. What do we pray for? This is so important. What if we prayed that our governing officials would have more wisdom what if we prayed that they would rule with righteousness? What if we prayed that they would be surrounded by advisors who were men and women of character? What if we prayed that they would be surrounded like people by people like Daniel in the Old Testament that would help them lead with righteousness? What if we, oh my gosh, what if we prayed for the salvation of those who are in authority over us in our government? Y'all, the Lord convicted me so much of this, so much this week. I underestimate the power of the gospel to change somebody's heart. I don't pray for my leaders enough. I don't pray that if they don't know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, or if they've never submitted to the lordship of him over their life. I don't, I don't, I don't believe sometimes in the power of the gospel. Can we imagine what would happen if in our nation, if a move of the Spirit of God began to sweep over local governments and state governments and national governments and people started giving their lives to Jesus Christ? All this stuff that we bicker and argue about, elephants and donkeys, would probably evaporate pretty fast. Because the gospel can change people's lives. What would our government look like if followers of Jesus prayed for our government just a fraction as much as we complained about them? That's convicting, isn't it? So we submit, we pray. This is important too. We influence. We influence the government. We're charged by Scripture to do that very thing. One of the unique things about our nation is that we're governed by a democracy. It's amazing that our participation is invited and that we get to be involved in the process. But here's what's so important. This is straight from the Scriptures. Philippians 3, verse 20, that if you are a citizen of America and you're a follower of Jesus, that you carry a dual citizenship if you live here. Philippians 3.20 says our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Meaning primarily that if you're a follower of Jesus today, your primary citizenship is in heaven. I love that because it means Jesus has to be the ultimate authority over your life. Second to that, you're a citizen of America. That's your secondary citizenship. So hear this. This is very important to understand. It means my primary citizenship, heaven, must influence my secondary citizenship, America. My homeland has to in- influence my temporary home. So how do we influence? If we're Jesus followers in America, 21st century, dual citizenship, invited into the process. One of my favorite verses, Matthew chapter 5, 13 and 14, Jesus tells his followers, you're salt to the earth. But if salt loses its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no good for anything but to be thrown out, trampled under people's feet. Verse 14, your light of the world, a city situated on a hill that can't be hidden. There's a word picture there at play that Jesus is using to this crowd of people listening to him. First, salt in that time period was a preservation agent. They didn't have refrigeration like we do, so they would often salt things that would decay. It preserved them longer. Light, what's the purpose of light? It exposes and drives out darkness. So as Jesus' followers, we're called to be salt and light in society even in our politics meaning that we influence culture and society with the values that reflect our homeland. We influence culture and society with the values that reflect our homeland. How? Some of you aren't going to expect this. You're going to say, you need to vote this way. No. The scripture says that the first thing that I'm to do primarily is to live and preach the gospel. I take the message of my king into a different kingdom and say, come and be part of this one. That's my primary calling, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, is the gospel. Because we believe at this church that Jesus is ultimately the hope of the world. I'm going to amen myself and throw a shoe. Jesus is the hope of the world. Do you know our hope is not found in politicians? Our hope's not in government. We don't put our hope in those things. We only hope in Jesus and Jesus alone. But second to that, some of y'all thought that's where we're going to stop. Second to that, the scripture is clear that we need to seek as Jesus followers to infuse kingdom values into our culture and society. Why? Because we're salt and light. How do we do that? What if we had more Christians that were willing to run for political office? What if we had more Christians that were willing to get involved in the PTA and get involved in the school systems? What if we had more Christians? That were willing to give up Monday nights once a month to go to city council meetings? What if we had more Christians that were willing to volunteer in nonprofits? You wanna talk about being salt and light? There's a very practical way that we can do it. But one of those that's coming up for us in 30 days is what? We get to vote. Can we talk about this in church? I don't know, but we're gonna, we're going to. We've been invited, think about this, by our government to participate in the governing process. Now, let me make this very clear. We've had this conversation a couple times this past couple weeks. At this church, I won't speak for other ones, at this church, we will never, ever, ever propagate certain people or certain candidates, ever. I'm going to tell you why, because they're flawed. And I'm not going to hitch my wagon, and I'm not going to hitch the wagon of this church to a flawed human being as the solution to any issues and problems that we may have as a nation. We hitch our wagon to one name, the name of Jesus. Clear on that? But here's what we will do. We will, from the word of God, encourage biblical values. I hope that you've seen over the last five years at this church that we will preach what the word of God says and very biblical values. And we believe that we will then help you and equip you, based on Ephesians chapter 5, to um, make good, informed, convictional decisions as a follower of Jesus from the Word of God. Let me explain a few of those to you. We champion biblical values, things like the sanctity of life. We believe in protecting the lives of preborn children, not because that's my opinion, but because the Scripture says to you in Job 31.15, in Proverbs 6, verse 17, we champion things like the traditional family as outlined in Ephesians chapter 5 and chapter 6. We, we champion things like caring for the less fortunate. Goodness gracious, we have a ministry center that does that whole thing. Why do we do that? Because the scripture says to in Proverbs nineteen seventeen and Galatians 2, verse 10, we, we champion things like welcoming and caring for those from other nations. Currently, as a church, we worship together every Sunday from six nations in two languages. Why do we do that? Because Jesus said to in Matthew 25, 35, Paul reminded us to in Romans 12, verse 13. We champion biblical marriage because the word of God talks about in Genesis 2, verse 24. We champion within that covenant monogamous sexual relationship. Why? It's not because it's my opinion. It's because the Bible says to in Genesis 128 and Proverbs 5, 18. We champion things like protecting the vulnerable in our society, friends, currently like our children, from evil ideologies that are trying to come after them. Why do we do that? Because the word of God says to in Proverbs twenty-four, eleven, and Psalm 82, 13, the scripture compels us to be salt and light to preserve the very things that are decaying and expose the darkness that's trying to creep into every corner of our society. And we will always champion the values that are outlined in this book. When we lift high the Word of God, and then what do we do? We encourage you as followers of Jesus to make convictional decisions based on what the Word of God says. We submit. We pray and we influence. As Pastor Joe comes, he's going to deal now with the tough tension before I close this out. If we do those things, we submit, we pray, we influence the government. We live in this weird conundrum, Joe, if you want to make your way up here. That we believe God is sovereign over everything, meaning he's in total and complete control. But what if things don't turn out the way I think they should? What if things don't turn out maybe the way you think they should? What if things... Although we do those things, we submit, we pray, we influence the government, what if we still look around sometimes at things going on around us and we have to ask the question, God, what are you doing? And why are you allowing these things? Joe's going to answer that question for us.
1: We don't typically both preach, but this is kind of cool. Aaron did take a lot of time, and I'm going to take about five minutes and fix everything he said wrong. But... uh. No, but as he said, as we, as we think about these things, there's a, there's a temptation for us to think that if we do what we're supposed to do, then it'll work out the way we think it should work out. And there's even more of a temptation to think that it must work out the way God wants it to work out. Yet, if you read stories like Job, if you th- see all these different things in the Bible, that's not always the case. And so what I want to do today, I want us to look at, does God judge nations? Does he bless nations? And if he does, how do we respond to those things? Because I think as we look around, we can't say that the way we're headed is the way God wants us to be headed. And so I want us to, to dive into that. But before we get into the passage in Isaiah that I come across about nine months ago that was kind of shocking to me, we've got to, we've got to ask the question, does God judge other nations? And to do that, it's a, it's a valid question because you can't just look at the Old Testament and assume that we apply to everything that's going on because it talks about Israel a lot, right? And Israel has got a covenant with God. America does not have a covenant with God. No other nation has a covenant with God. Israel has a covenant with God, right? So as we we got to look at, does God judge other nations that don't have a covenant? Because it gets confusing sometimes because we as Christians have been grafted into the promise on an individual basis through Jesus. But as a nation, we can't just jump to what we see in the Old Testament about Israel and assume that's for us as well. So what do we know about Scripture? How does God you know do those things? Um, and again, just for the sake, in case someone's confused, because I think when we talk about Israel, we do separate ourselves a lot sometimes. Let's not forget who we are in Christ. In John 1.12 it says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Right? So we are grafted in as Christians. So we, I don't want to confuse anyone there. but When we're talking about the nation, we've got to look at Israel and everyone else differently because only Israel has a covenant. So what do we know if we're looking at God's judgment? Here's what we do know based on the last few weeks in Romans. We all deserve judgment, right? Romans 3.10 says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. In three twenty-three, it says, "For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God." We all deserve judgment. That's the reality. Yet God blesses nations by withholding that judgment. That's a fascinating concept. It's called common grace, and grace again is getting something you don't deserve, right? And we see this all throughout Scripture. Jesus says that God makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. In Matthew, Psalm one forty-five nine, the Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He's made. Luke 6.35 says, For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. That's an interesting verse, but you and I should understand it very well. Because Jesus came to die when we were his enemy. We've experienced the kindness of God, even though we deserved his judgment. You go on and you see God blessing nations because of a single person. You look at Joseph, right? The one that his brothers betrayed. He goes in and yet God raises him up to second in command. And in Genesis 39, 5, it says, Blessed is the Egyptian house for Joseph's sake. And we, go, we know that Joseph goes on and he saves the nation of Israel, plus the surrounding ones, because of the insight that God gave him and because he was an upright man. In Genesis 15, 16, it's fascinating the patience that God has towards us. He tells Abraham, And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Think about that. For 400 years... God is going to withhold judgment until their sin has been complete. Now, I just imagine the blessing that those 400 years the people living had. Yet yeah, we should never take God's patience as just a, a, a way for us to do what we want or to think that judgment isn't coming. In 2 Peter, we're told about that, that he's not slow as some count slow, right? But he's patient towards us, not willing that any should perish, but all will come to eternal life. But then he goes on to say that his judgment will come in a, like a thief in the night. Romans 2, 4 tells us, Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So God blesses nations by withholding His judgment, but too often then the nation takes that as a license to sin instead of realizing that He's doing that to cause you to repent. We deserve judgment, yet God sometimes blesses us by withholding that judgment. So going back to the question, does God judge other nations aside from Israel. Well, again, if we go to Scripture, and for the sake of time, I'm going to mention where these are. You can look them up later. But we see that God destroys Sodom in Genesis 18 and 19. God destroys Edom in Jeremiah 49. He destroys Babylon in Jeremiah 50, and He destroys Assyria in Zephaniah 4. All of those do not have a covenant with God, yet all of those God judges, not just punishes them, but wipes them off the face of the earth because of their sin. One of the ways that He does that We've already seen in Romans chapter 1 when we were going through it a few months ago that he just gives them up to their own sin. right? He lets sin go. It's so what you want. Go ahead and do it and it destroys them. And it ends up in Romans 1.28 where they have a mind that is unable to work. It's a non-functioning mind, a debased mind, not able to think rationally. That's one way he judges. The other way he judges... It's through the leadership, as Pastor Aaron already talked about, that he sovereignly puts into place. God can bless or judge a nation based on the leadership and how it actually has control over what's going on. So this leads me to the passage in Isaiah chapter 3 that I want to look at. Again, I think you're going to find it interesting, as I did about eight months ago. Though we're different than Israel, God's still the same God. And I want us to look at how he specifically judges them for their sin. And I think we can gain some insight. I'm not going to have you stand as Pastor Aaron already did. This also won't be on the screen just for the sake of slides, but we're going to go through these verses. So I'm going to read it. Isaiah chapter 3, 1 through 10. I encourage you to read along with me. Verse 1 says, For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and Judah support and supply all support of bread and all support of water, the mighty men and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner, the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician and the expert in charms. And I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them. And the people will oppress one another, every one his fellow and every one his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. For a man will take hold of his brother and his house of his father, saying, You have a cloak, you shall be our leader, and this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. And in that day he will speak out, saying, I will not be a healer. In my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me a leader of the people. For Jerusalem has stumbled. Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. For the look on their faces bear witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom, and they do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. As we look at this passage, I want us to look at how God judges a nation. In verse 1, we see something specific. He says, For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away. God is removing what he's already placed and that was blessing the nation at that point. And when God removes what he's given, he leaves you with what you deserve. And that doesn't work out very well. So what specifically does he take away? It says that he takes away support of uh, bread and water. And this is interesting because we know at this time they had an abundance. In Isaiah 2, 7, it says, Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. So here they are living in an abundance of every resource. Abundance of food, abundance of water, abundance of treasure and finances. Yet they use it to worship themselves instead of God. So God takes it away. Can you imagine having everything to the point that you get, take it for granted and then it gets all stripped away? I don't think it's that hard for us to imagine. He also takes away the men that God currently had blessed them with in verse uh, 3 or verse 2. It says the mighty men and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor, the skillful magician and the expert in charms. Everyone they had counted on to lead well, God takes away. And notice who he replaces them with in verse 4. And I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them. In the Hebrew, though it does show an age, it's, it's based on the character So it's based on the the immaturity of the character, and it's described as someone who's given to sudden or unaccountable changes in mood or behavior, someone who lacks control or restraint, a reckless sense of freedom, someone who can be cruel and violent deliberately and unprovoked. In other words, a far cry from the mighty men that were blessing the nation. And as a result, it says people will oppress each other, the youth will disrespect the elders, and the despised will disrespect the honorable. Everything gets flipped on its head. He goes on to say they're not even going to be able to find a leader at that point. And they're going to point at anyone who even has a coat and says, you be the leader. And of course, he's like, I can't even take care of my own family. I'm not doing this. God blesses a nation through leadership, but he can also judge them. Now I want to look at why he judges them. Now this should be obvious, but I've been learning here recently. God doesn't waste his words. And yet all throughout his word, he reminds us of the obvious. So it must not be that obvious. In verse 8, it was told that for Jerusalem has stumbled, Judah has fallen, because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying His glorious presence. For the look on their face bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. So again, God judges a nation because of their sin. That's obvious. And He lays out what they did. But I want us to notice something. There's a sin that leads to these things. And it's mentioned right in the last verse of chapter 2, and we've seen it in Romans, and we'll go there in a second. In chapter 2, verse 22, Isaiah says, the God speaking through Isaiah says, Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Your, your Bible might say, Stop trusting the mere humans. Cease trusting in them. Sever yourselves. This is a problem that Israel's had all throughout their history. In fact, their first government was a result of this. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people tell Samuel, now appoint for us a king to judge us in verse 5. Verse 7, you're going to see God giving them what they want. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. He goes on and tells Samuel, but I want you to warn the people. I want you to warn them of what they're going to get with this king. And I want you to contrast this. I'm going to paraphrase it for you. It starts in verse 11, goes down to 18. But contrast it with the God who gives to the king that they want, that's going to take. It says, your sons and daughters to serve him. Your land to give to his servants. Your taxes to pay for his officers. He's going to take your servants and the best of your youth to work for him and you're going to be his slaves. Yet notice how they respond in verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, But there shall be a king over us. Now notice this. That way we may also be like all the nations. They wanted to have a a human king. They wanted to have someone rule over them. Yet God was their king. So God says, okay. Samuel, obey their voice. Give them exactly what they want. And in steps King Saul. They rebel against God. They want this. So God gives it to them. And look what happens with King Saul. Now, thankfully, as they repent, as we see all throughout Scripture, when they repent and cry out to God, he restores that. He restores the kingdom with King David. But the reality was, is God was their king. They wanted someone to judge them and to to go into battle with them. That's exactly what God had already done. And as we saw in verse 7, they were rejecting God, and they wanted a man instead. When we reject God and don't acknowledge Him, that should sound familiar. If we go back to Romans one twenty one, we saw the sin, but we saw what led up to the sin. In verse 21 it says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were dark, and claiming to be wise, they became fools. This is where it all starts. You deny the Lord, you deny His way, you go after your own, and this is what you end up with. Verse 9 says, In Isaiah, they proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Now we know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah with the two angels and the men wanting to have relations with them. But we also know that their sin had reached heaven and God calls down fire and sulfur from heaven to destroy them and the surrounding cities and only Lot and his two daughters survived. But he didn't just destroy it. No one could set foot in it again. He completely wiped it off the face of the earth. Earlier I mentioned the other nations that God destroyed. It's interesting. In all those nations, there's a similar statement that's made. With Edom, it says they were destroyed just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Babylon, just, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Moab, like Sodom. Amorites, like Gomorrah. And here Israel is proclaiming their sin like Sodom. So what did Sodom do? In Ezekiel 16, 49 we said, For behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but they did not aid the poor of the needy. So here they have an excess, and look what it leads to in Jude 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. They had been blessed with an abundance and instead of worshiping the Lord they worshiped their own desires. And look where it leads. Not just in doing the sin. It says they proclaim the sin. They do not hide it. It says they defy God to his face in the Hebrew. So God judges them for that. I don't have to tell you that this sounds awful familiar to what we're seeing today. Sadly, America has become the megaphone to the world that you decide what's right and wrong. You get to choose. I'm here to tell you, no matter what anyone else says, the Bible says God will not be mocked. So how do we respond? I don't know if God's judging our name. I mean, I don't know if we can apply this to us. I think it looks that way. But how are we to respond if God is judging or if God chooses to bless? How are we to respond? Simple answer is to be a Christian, right? But I love something in this passage. Tucked away in this divine judgment, we have verse 10. Verse 9 says, Woe to them, for they brought evil among themselves. Verse 11 says, Woe to the wicked. But verse 10 says, Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat of the fruit of their deeds. Reminds me of what Jesus said in John 16, 33. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. All throughout Scripture, we're reminded we're going to live a life contrary to the world if we're believers. But that shouldn't, that shouldn't make us feel afraid. It shouldn't make us change how we live. In fact, in 1 Peter, we see something fascinating. Pastor Aaron read 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14 about submitting to the government. Right before that, in that context, notice what he says in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers... They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Very similar to Matthew 5, but different. In here, what Peter is actually saying is that when you're to live your life, those that oppose you, those that hate you, are going to look at you and call you evildoers. Yet when they see your good deeds, they'll glorify God on the day of visitation. Meaning that when they experience grace, that they'll respond with saving faith because of your testimony. That's a fascinating opportunity that God brings us into that the way we live our lives will actually lead people to Christ I want to read as I close here a couple verses in Jude that tell us how to how to live in the last days in verse 18 it says in this last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions it is these who cause divisions worldly people devoid of the spirit but you beloved building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Now notice verse 22. And have mercy on those who doubt. Snatch others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. As we live in this last time, however long that last time is, we're to be good examples. We're to live a life that is God-honoring. And in doing so, people are going to see that lifestyle, and God's going to use that to save people. It's a remarkable thing. As Galatians 6, 9 tells us, don't don't let us grow weary in doing good, for in due time you'll reap if you do not quit. So let's be salt and light into a dark world. Let's let our life be a living example to God's design. No matter what we experience, remember the words of Jesus, you will have tribulation in this life, but take heart, I've overcome the world.
0: Based on what we've read, based on what we've heard today, here's my challenge for us as a church. And we're going to just close in prayer. I texted our leader of a praise team. We're going to close with this. Um, encourage you. Obey the scriptures. Live with convictions. I think it's pretty simple. And here's, here's what I, I want to let you know. So, and we shared this two weeks ago. Over the next few weeks, it's heading into this next season for our country, um, we will, unapologetically, Provide value-based information to you. It's our job as pastors to equip you as followers of Jesus. And so you'll, you'll see those things. But I will remind you, we will never, ever, we do not propagate politicians. We don't propagate people. What we do say, though, is we'll encourage you. We read the scriptures. We weigh those against the positions where people stand. We pray. We weigh our conscience and then you act now as a Christian with conviction. But let me say this, and, and please, I have uh, uh, not dreaded this message, but I haven't been looking forward to it, to be totally honest. Living hope, let me, let me beg you, let me beg you, don't let politics divide us, okay? Do not let politics divide us, because here's the reality, and this is what I've, I've learned in the, divi- the diversity of the family that God has called together as living hope. I I think, for the most part, we're going to likely agree on most of the biblical values that we find in the Scriptures, right? The Word of God is authority. We're not going to argue that. But how we practically implement those may look a little bit different among us. And that's okay. We agree with the Scriptures say, but the practical implementation of those things, it may look a little different. And that's okay. So we choose as Christians to walk with humility, We choose to walk with grace. We choose to walk with honor, respect, love, and kindness moving forward. And let me say this, and I want to read this to you specifically. We don't and we won't at this church fight like the world fights. We don't get that luxury. We don't do that. In this family, we choose unity because the gospel is our anchor and Jesus is our hope. Sometimes that means we need to have conversations like they did in the book of Acts where the door is closed, and we don't agree, and that's okay, and we need to dialogue and converse about our differences, and sometimes maybe we just need to walk away and say, you know what, we believe what the scripture says, but how we practically implement this, we're just not going to agree on that, but that's okay, because Jesus is our hope, and he's the hope of the world, and that's the thing we do agree on, and that's the thing we will propagate as a church. Let me remind us of this as we close. Someday what we see, someday what we participate in in this country, it will pass away. Let me remind us of that truth. Someday this will all pass away and all of us that claim Jesus as our Lord will gather around his throne from every nation, tongue, tribe, dialect, and people worshiping him. Until then, under this government, we worship We pray, we influence, we search the scriptures, we seek the Lord, but the kingdom of God is primary for us always. Here's what I would like to do with this, and again, I talked with Seth. We're not going to close in a worship song. I'm going to ask us as a church, if you'll take 30 seconds with me, and let's just close in a posture of prayer and just ask the Spirit of God to take the Word of God and allow it to transform our hearts. I think that's an appropriate Um, position for us to take will you join me in prayer god we love you god i love this church i love these people i pray even on our communication of the truth of the word of god this morning that that has come across loud and clear to everyone in the sound of my and pastor joe's voice we love these people God, we don't want to shy away from the hard things that are in the Word of God, and we unapologetically teach what the Bible says. And so, Father, I pray that the Scriptures would do their work through the Spirit of God in each one of our hearts. That, God, as you've called us to be salt and light, as we see in Matthew 5, that we would function from a position of conviction as we have the opportunity to vote in a month, As we have the opportunity to live as salt and light in our workplaces, our marriages, our school systems. So many places that we get to take Jesus. God, may we do that as a convictional people grounded in the word of God. God, thank you for the story that you've written in this church. Thank you that you've gathered a people that want to answer the question, what does the word of God say? And God, even at times, Lord, myself included, when we're confronted with things in the scriptures, as I have been this week, that God, we would not allow that um, to cause us to slink back, to cause us to put up any kind of wall, nothing, Lord. But may we humbly say, God, I, I willingly submit to you because you're Lord. So God, would you foster an atmosphere of humility among each one of us? May we be willing to learn, to grow, and to love together willing to hear different sides of the same argument, God, because you've called us together united around the gospel despite our differences. And may we always be a Jesus people. It's in your name we pray these things, Father. Amen.